0: Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing the history of China's claims and its strategy in the South China Sea. Sovereignty over land features and their maritime entitlements are disputed in the South China Sea by China, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei, and Taiwan. At stake in this dispute, are resources such as fish and energy deposits, as well as control over a major commercial waterway for trade. In addition, the South China Sea is a test of how China's emergence as a great power will affect its handling of territorial disputes with its neighbors going forward. Talking with us today about both the history of the South China Sea disputes and current challenges is Bill Hayton. Bill has worked for BBC News for 20 years. He's an associate fellow with the Asia Pacific Program at Chatham House in London, and has written extensively on South China Sea and Southeast Asian issues. Bill, thanks for joining us on the China Power podcast today. Thank you very
1: much for inviting me.
0: So, Bill, you've argued that China's claim, which sometimes called the nine-dash line or the U-shaped line, was formed in three distinct episodes in 1909, in 1933, and 1946. So- Um, a thumbnail sketch. What transpired? Why is this history important?
1: Uh, To cut a very long story short, um, those three years uh, were the years in which the Chinese claim, in effect, advanced southwards. So in 1909, uh, a Japanese merchant was found on the island of Pratas, which no one really uh, thinks much about these days. It's, it's uh, occupied by Taiwan. It's between Taiwan and, and Hong Kong, and it's undisputed Chinese territory, if you like. But that became a big issue in 1909. And really, that was the first time that the Chinese public took an, is- an interest in the, in the South China Sea Islands, as far as I can tell. Um, and then it forced the government to then make a claim, uh, and that claim extended to the Paracel Islands. So that was 1909. And really, it was just Pratas and, and the Paracels. 1933 is more complicated because France annexes some of the Spratly Islands that year and the Chinese uh, government is unsure about which islands they've taken and the Chinese, many of the Chinese uh, people in the population think that they've annexed the Paracel Islands which obviously uh, China had already claimed and so this causes enormous confusion um, and it takes several weeks for it to be resolved and in the end the Chinese government realises that it's not the Paracel Islands and doesn't protest what the French have done but in the confusion, the idea that there are these other islands that rightfully belong to China emerges among the, in the population. Um, but there's no actual claim. And it's not until after the Second World War, uh, 1946, that the claim actually moves further south. And, and there's a whole series of confusions that lead up to this. But uh, it's only really um, in in late nineteen forty six that the Chinese government, or even in early nineteen forty seven, that the Chinese government decides it's going to make a claim to the Spratly Islands. So um, my parents won't like me saying this, but the Chinese claim to the Spratlys is actually younger than my parents.
0: (laughs) So what about the origin of the claims of uh, the other? Uh, the other countries uh, and the other parties uh, are they more legitimate than China's are? Where do they come from?
1: Um, <laughs> I think you, when you look at these claims, you have to divide two things. There are actions which governments can claim uh, took place in in the past, uh, which show that they you know stuck a flag in something or built a lighthouse or took some kind of act. But then there's also the idea that you know when these when population start to believe that islands rightfully belong to us and these are two separate things so i would say you know in china the idea the belief in these islands belonging to us as it were probably emerged around the 1930s and in, in that period and it was much later in the other country so maybe not even until 1974 in the case of Vietnam when they had the Battle of the Parasol Islands and people became very aware of the uh, of the, the existence of the islands and maybe uh, in, you know even possibly even you know kind of later really for the most people in the Philippines but at the same time governments can point to things that happened further back in time um, so I would argue really that um, in terms of actually states doing things on the islands as opposed to simply believing um, that they had some kind of rights that um, I mean you have activities by the French uh, in some of the Spratly Islands in the, in the 20s and the 30s you have activities by the United States when it was the power in the Philippines um, and you have uh, and you also have activities by earlier earlier governments so actually trying to say which power controlled the the whole sea I think is silly I think what you have to do is look at individual islands and you can say for example that you know maybe the, the you know Chinese forces in 1946 landed on, on Itu Aba uh, in, in the Spratly Islands and stuck their flag there, but they didn't go to any of the other islands. So, um, you know, maybe the Vietnamese would have a better claim on one of the other islands, for example, on, on Spratly Island itself, or the Philippines might have a better claim on Titu Island. So I think if you, if you broke down the claims into individual features, rather than saying we claim the whole lot, it would actually make it much easier to resolve.
0: So in other words, if all the claimants were to take this to the International Court of Justice, and and they would all have to be involved in order for the ICJ to obviously Mm -hmm. take on the case, it would be possible to resolve it legally?
1: I think so. If, if they accepted the principle that you could break down the claim into separate reefs and, and islands. Um, if you if it was simply a question of saying, you know, I claim all of the Paracels, all of the Spratlys, then, you know, we would just talk and talk and talk, I think. But I think there's been a, a resistance to go into this because it appears to be far too complex. And people think that you have to understand the entire history of the South China Sea and they just simply on the records. But actually, when you, it's simply a question of... Comparing the evidence that the, the governments present to say, well, in you know, the Vietnamese would say that in the early 19th century, uh, the the emperor uh, ordered that um, uh, fishermen go to the islands and, and collect cannon from wrecked ships, and this shows that they claimed some kind of uh, uh, ownership or, or administration of the islands. Where so the Chinese would say, well, you know, we have um, you know long fished in these waters and this sort of thing, but. Um, I think if you actually ask them to say, well, can you identify that particular island that, you know, that was under your occupation Um, in the way, for example, that Singapore and Malaysia um, tried to do uh, in the uh, in the Pedro Branca case in these islands in the the Singapore Straits. Um, And, you know, those, you know, those, those two features are, you know. 400 meters apart. And yet the International Court of Justice was able to say, well, you know, Singapore built a lighthouse on this one, that goes to Singapore, um, not on the other one, that one goes to Malaysia. So the, the principle is, has been laid down.
0: So back to the history. Uh, obviously, these disputes have concerned those uh, countries that uh, have put forward claims and directly involved. But at what point did these contested claims really pique the interests of the international community more broadly? And Why?
1: I suppose it was probably not until the mid-1970s, 1974, when uh, China, which is occupying the eastern half of the Paracels, invades the western half, uh, which is occupied by Vietnam. Um, And certainly in terms of the academic writing about the the, the islands, that's when it it takes off. There's very, very little before that. Um, but even in that um, incident, um, I mean, the United States was, a, was an ally of, of the Republic of Vietnam at the time, but didn't think it was sufficiently important to intervene um, uh, to, uh, in, in, on either side. So I think there's been a sense that these islands are uh, you know, potentially a problem for the region, but that they're not sufficiently important for outside powers to, to want to intervene directly. I mean, and the British and the French, going back to the early 20th century, were only really concerned about them because of the possibility that Japan might occupy them and, and use them as a, as a stepping stone. So they haven't really been in, interesting in their own sake, they've really been interesting because of what people can do with them. And I suppose we see that to this day with China building these massive new artificial islands uh, in the Spratleys and the consequences that that's had for, for the regional balance of power um, and, and for freedom of navigation uh, in, in the South China Sea as a whole. Um, I suppose the other thing is, is that in 1982, once you had uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and the idea that you could have an exclusive economic zone which could theoretically be drawn from some of these features, um, then people realized that there were oil deposits and so forth that could be uh, could be claimed from them, the arbitration tribunal that ruled in 2016 has in effect said that none of these islands, none of these features are you know can claim an exclusive economic zone so, so to some extent, At least in the eyes of sort of international law, that's gone away, but obviously not from the the Chinese perspective. What do
0: you think is driving China's activity there in recent years? We know that China has uh, built up uh, seven military outposts, three of which are really enormous that have 10,000-foot runways. Uh, Recently announced that uh, they had deployed anti-ship cruise missiles, surface-to-air missiles, electronic jamming equipment. Some people say that it's about Chinese nationalism. Others say this is being driven by uh, energy, uh, by maybe need for fish for more protein. What do you see as China's strategic objective?
1: I think I think all of those things are important, um, and I don't see that there's much value in trying to say which, which one is more important. Um, I mean, I think there are strategic um, and defensive. Um, Elements to it. I mean, you know, China has the same right as any country to you know, be concerned about its its defence of its of its borders and its its coast. Um, but what we're seeing now is something more than that, which is projecting power further away from the coastline. Um, and China has, um, you know, uh, uh, sea lanes of communication, trade routes. Um, it's starting to increasingly develop interests uh, in other parts of the world, and these are. These bases are a way, I suppose, of projecting power closer down to the to the to the Malacca Strait and into the Indian Ocean. Um, so it's uh, there's an element of, um, I guess, of, of defence, but also I guess an element of expansion and, and projecting power outwards. And I think the, the they're also important in the context of uh, um, a possible future uh, military action against Taiwan. Um, and I think in terms of actually. Constructing, I mean, I think this is an idea that's really come from Japanese watchers, the idea that what China is trying to do is create a bastion in the South China Sea in which it's going to hide its uh, ballistic missile submarines um, and to keep others out and and protect that. Um, So that's the sort of strategic side. The resources are clearly there. The idea, I think, that they um, uh, want to uh, stop other countries claiming or developing the oil and gas deposits and then presumably potentially develop them themselves in the future. Fish is part of that as well. I think one shouldn't underestimate maybe just the degree of bureaucratic self-interest here that uh, state-owned enterprises, provinces, you know, even the Navy and the Coast Guard themselves you know, want to see this because you know, it bolsters their position. But I think underlying all of this is the nationalistic sense that this, this is rightfully Chinese territory um, and, and, and the rest of it. And the, that sense of righteousness and entitlement just flows from that basic position.
0: I understand that in Chinese textbooks that they have a map and they teach very young children that the southernmost point of uh, the nine-dash line is actually the southernmost point of China's territory, correct?
1: Yes. I mean, and the strange thing is it's this feature called the James Shoal, which isn't there. (laughs) It's actually an underwater uh, piece of territory. It's well, not even territory. It's a piece of seabed. Um, And... uh, this was really the the story of untangling this this riddle was really what led me to understanding the whole story of the south china sea uh even the the name james shoal in chinese is is zengmu ansha um and a lot of because zengmu uh means sort of grandmother uh, so in, in chinese but actually Zengwu is is the transliteration of james jm so what happened was that the in the 1930s the um Uh, a geography professor and a um, a government committee made a series of translation mistakes um, and they thought that shoal meant like a sandbank and they thought it was an island and they became, uh, in their eyes, an island and they drew the line around it. Um, But actually there's nothing there. And so to this day, um, uh, Chinese ships, when they're on their way to, say, anti-piracy in Somalia, will stop at this um, bit of sea and throw a concrete block over the side and say this is Chinese territory, but there's no territory there.
0: (laughs) So let's talk about some of China's tactics. Uh, Some people have referred to China's engaging in salami slicing. Other people describe this as gray zone tactics. And essentially, China using its growing capabilities, uh, coast guard ships, uh, maritime militia, uh, to put pressure on uh, other countries but staying below the threshold that would provoke a military response from uh, the United States. Uh, Another tactic that's often talked about is this uh, cabbage strategy, using layers of boats, having the maritime militia, and then the Coast Guard um, outside of that, and then, of course, Navy ships off uh, on the horizon. And it used that tactic in May of 2014 when it deployed this massive oil rig, uh, the Haiyang Shio, uh inside Vietnam's waters. So if you look at these um, these tactics that China has used, how do you think, um, how successful do you see them? And how have other countries attempted to counter them?
1: I'm thinking of a Chinese buffet with salami sliced and cabbage leaves now. <laughs> <But> the, <laughs> um, I think there's a there's one there's a few strange things I suppose about the way that China has behaved, which is I mean militarily, if it really wanted to occupy, certainly all the features occupied by the Philippines, they are to all intents and purposes undefended. Um, it could do so in an afternoon, really, if it wanted to. It would have a bit more trouble with the with the Vietnamese features, but I don't think there's much doubt that in a sort of simple military fight between the the two, China would prevail. So China has to some extent exercised a, a degree of of, of restraint. Um, but at the same time, it's clearly trying to use these sort of tactics that you described to to push forward its territorial claims uh, in a way that doesn't appear to be overtly violent. So on the second Thomas Shoal, it was a siege where they tried to stop supplies coming to the Philippine Marines that were based there in the hope, I presume, that the Philippine Marines would have given up and, and gone away. And I would have imagine it would have taken about 30 minutes then for the Chinese to land on the same feature and, and, and to occupy it. Um, uh, in, St- in Scarborough Shoal in 2012, um, we've seen that uh, China in effect take control of it. It hasn't yet built or uh, put any uh, people on the feature. Uh, and from what I can tell, from and I've, uh, I mean Zach Cooper here at CSIS, you um, know, examined this, and that seems to be in a case where United States deterrence seems to have worked against uh, against China on that one. You know, the actual that there were blunt messages from the Obama administration to Beijing at that time, which is you will not build on this on this uh, shoal. Um, and but I think this, I, I mean, this Chinese. Um, long-standing sort of communist party strategy of active defense whereby you you basically wait for the other guy to make a mistake and then you're ready with your you know your retaliation so it always appears as if you're uh, you know you're responding to a provocation from somebody else but actually that was always your your aim um so in the scarborough Shoal case it was presented that it was the philippines by sending a naval ship to um Arrest fishing poachers. That they had gone somehow beyond what was acceptable, and that they provoked the confrontation. Um, And there would be, I'm sure, you know, other potential moves in the future would be presented as being responses to provocations. But I'm convinced that in the in the long term, it's it's China's aim to occupy every single feature within the in 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 the U-shaped line, if they can, and if um, if they can get away with it.
0: China and Vietnam have explored oil together in the Gulf of Tonkin um, for almost a decade, uh, although they didn't find any major oil deposits. And now Beijing is pushing for joint development uh, again uh, in essentially waters that China claims uh, are disputed. And it's warned Hanoi to not unilaterally explore or exploit oil, and gas in waters that China claims. So recently there was a Spanish company Repsol that was told by the Vietnamese to shut down its operations after it sunk hundreds of millions of dollars um, uh, into exploration. So what's the lesson that we should draw here? Is this an example of Chinese coercion working in the South China Sea?
1: I think bluntly, yes. (laughs) Um, The Uh, Repsol has now tried to um, drill in two neighbouring blocks uh, right on the edge of the Vietnamese claimed exclusive economic zone, areas which are included within the Chinese U-shaped line. Um, And both times it has been uh, told to stop and been threatened. I was told um, by people in the oil industry that in 2017, there was a direct threat from China to the Vietnamese government that Vietnam has these um, stilt platforms in, on an area of the sea where this oil drilling was to take place. Are they like sort of Armed oil rigs, basically, that they they sit on this area of shallow seabed, and that the Chinese would attack those if the if the drilling went ahead, um, and uh, the China and the Vietnamese government decided it wasn't prepared to, to face down that risk and uh, told the uh, the companies to stop the drilling. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what happened this year, but it seems that something similar similar took place because the drilling has been cancelled. So, I mean, it really it bluntly I think shows. Um, Vietnam's lack of options here is that there was a a military threat against them and they were not prepared to answer it with with their own um, military deterrence so really you know what does that you know where does that leave Vietnam are they going to try and do this again and hope that the Chinese aren't looking. Well, that seems a bit bit unlikely to succeed. Um, so um, I think they're you know they're in a in a, in a very difficult position. I mean, their Vietnamese oil production has fallen by something like twelve percent over the last three years. Um, I mean, the, the economy is doing okay, but I mean that's that's a you know major chunk of of income which isn't going to the state budget uh, in, in Vietnam. Um, the Gulf of Tonkin, which you mentioned at the beginning of the question, is a, is a different case because in, in a, you know, it was decades ago that the uh, Chinese uh, then-Chinese government took uh, two of the dashes out of the dash line. But that allowed them to negotiate a, a boundary agreement, a boundary agreement which actually is uh, uh, due – part of it is due to run out very shortly actually um, because it was there was a fishing arrangement which only had a life of 15 years. So that actually might um, lead to uh, a bit of bit of friction potentially, but the. Um the, the, the vietnamese and the chinese have been trying to draw that boundary further south i mean it stops um at the mouth of the gulf of tonkin and basically the chinese government uh, is refusing to draw it, draw it further down because the the further they draw it into the south china sea the more it looks like they're rubbing out one of the dashes of the nine dash line and i guess if you can rub out one of them then you could rub out all nine of them so the real the, the the next question then is what does China mean by the the nine the, dash the line the U shaped line what is it actually claiming and of course you know you know as well as I that they've never been entirely clear on what this is um, and we're sort of seeing two quasi legal arguments that have emerged one is that this is a claim to uh, what some scholars have called historic rights that this line uh, somehow represented the extent of Chinese control in the past and that the chinese government therefore has the rights to the fish and the oil and the sea and so forth but well, that just seems to be you know, nonsensical. How, could, you know, how can you draw a line in the sea and say that on this side, the Chinese government exercised control, and on this side, it didn't? How could you prove that it didn't exercise control on the other side? Um, that's a, that, that argument, that historic rights argument, came out of one scholar in Taiwan, Professor Fu Quenchun, um, and you know, it's had an enormous impact. You could argue, in fact, that all of this trouble is the result of his, <laughs> his interventions in the early 1990s. But there's a separate set of arguments now emerging, which is that, and you see this more coming from the Chinese government, that by drawing a line around the islands as a group of islands, that they form an archipelago, and the archipelagos uh, somehow have the right to a, a collective territorial sea and an exclusive economic zone. And it seems that maybe this, well, China, I think, will probably try and play both of these arguments at the same time and, and, and see which one flies. Most legal scholars say that both of them are rubbish, but um, that doesn't stop the Chinese still talking about them.
0: US policy uh, in dealing with uh, the issue of the South China Sea Uh, seems to me to be relatively unchanged under the Trump administration compared to the Obama administration. Uh, We have seen freedom of navigation operations where U.S. military ships will sail through waters demonstrating that the United States will um, sail and fly and operate anywhere that international law allows. But the U.S. call for China to stop militarizing these islands has, of course, uh, fallen on deaf ears. And I wonder from the perspective of other countries in the region like Vietnam, uh, the Philippines, Malaysia, even Indonesia, which is not a claimant but has concerns about Chinese operating in uh, the Natuna Sea uh, near its Natuna Islands, how is U.S. policy viewed by the other uh, claimants?
1: I think Southeast Asian states generally welcome and encourage an American presence, a military presence in, in the region um, as a balancing power the, the, the Southeast Asians don't want to be in know uh, become Chinese vassal states they don't want to be told what to do by the Americans either but they, they, they want the presence there as a, as a reassurance in a way to um, uh, stop this um, sense that they're going to be swallowed up by a sort of greater China. Um, but I think, you know, they're, I mean, they're, while they, they, they do enjoy the presence of the US there as a reassurance, for them, the freedom of navigation question is not so much about um, the technicalities of whether military ships can sail within 12 nautical miles of a feature or those kind of things. I mean, they're they're really interested in whether they can exploit their oil and gas and fish reserves, um, and for them, it's really a question I think of defending the exclusive economic zone regime, the idea that uh, the law of the sea gives uh, countries the rights to the to the minerals and everything to up to two hundred nautical miles away from their coasts, and that they can't do it. I mean, to give you an impact, an example of the impact in the Philippines, twenty two percent, about a fifth of the Electricity generated in the Philippines is generated by gas, which comes from the Malampire gas field in the South China Sea. And that's going to run out 2022, 2023, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and the Philippines has, at the moment, got no plans to replace that. I mean, it's uh, still talking about importing liquefied natural gas. It might have to build more coal-fired power stations uh, to, to, to plug the gap. Um Meanwhile, there's a whole, you know, there's, there's supposed to be 13 trillion cubic feet of natural gas sitting under the reed bank, uh, which could be joined by a pipeline to the existing pipeline. Um, and that would keep the Philippines in, in electricity, you know, for, for many years to come. But the Philippines can't develop that because of the Chinese uh, military veto. Um that was supposed to have been cleared up legally by the arbitration tribunal, which reported two years ago, but the current government is refusing to uh, to, to use this, this legal precedent. Um, the Philippines is a, is a US ally. I mean, it would be entirely conceivable that the US and the Philippines could decide that this is an important point of principle. Um, that the exclusive economic zone regime is agreed by by all countries, including China. Uh, the Philippines is within its rights. It could then set out to try and extract this, protect it with um, uh, Philippines uh, Coast Guard and, and, and naval ships. And the, those ships would then be protected by the, the U.S.-Philippines Mutual Defense Treaty, in theory. I mean, that's that, that, that's a scenario. Um, so, and that would be, I mean, if people are talking about pushing back, uh, in the South China Sea, that would be a, a major way to say that this exclusive economic zone regime is crucial and is alive. Um, I mean, it would be a, a real case of brinkmanship. Um, but, um, I mean, that's, you know, that's that would be far more significant than periodic, you know, sailings within 12 nautical miles of, of uh, disputed features.
0: So let me ask you to look into your crystal ball. Uh, maybe look out five or 10 years and tell me where you think uh, things are going to go. And I'll just posit a couple of scenarios. There's been negotiations on a code of conduct between China and ASEAN. One possibility is we get a legally binding agreement, um, and that sort of freezes the status quo and tensions uh, reduce. Uh, We could be in a scenario where China uses force against uh, one of the claimants. Maybe it occupies an unoccupied feature, which would be a violation, of course, of the 2002 Declaration on the Conduct of Parties in the South China Sea. Um, and and that could end up leading to greater military conflict and eventually China owning all of these uh, These islands and dominating the South China Sea. Another scenario, of course, is a U.S.-China military confrontation. Uh, I don't think it would be sparked by a uh, an accident. Some people think that an accident could escalate, uh, but perhaps we could have a deliberate confrontation where the United States, maybe as you said earlier, decides that it's going to take a stand in support of the Philippines, which is its uh, treaty allies. And I'm sure there's other scenarios, but I'll just throw those out
1: Um, well I think I mean obviously it will depend on on the responses from the the other states and and from the US you know potentially Japan and Australia's involvement as well but I think that the direction of travel from China is is clear I mean it it wishes to um, be the sole power controlling the area within the u-shaped line Um, I think uh, I mean I'm convinced by these arguments about uh, the submarine bastion and f- for that to work really I think they would very much like to build on Scarborough Shoal at some point, another uh, big installation uh, somehow um, they've been deterred from that at the moment but I mean it, I mean, Chinese policy in the South China Sea is like a ratchet, you know, it kind of goes forward and then it sort of it can take a break but it never goes backwards you know, just it'll be the next click and the next click and the next um, and so I um, You know, ultimately, I think they would like to impose joint development in their terms of of the oil reserves, which basically means that, um, you know, in the areas uh, where there are oil and gas reserves, um, that the Philippines wouldn't be in... You know the, the, the government which extracts it, but they would have to basically share the revenues and and and, and the destination of, of of the oil and gas, um, and the same with Vietnam, with Brunei, with, with with Malaysia. So all of these states have the same problem, um, and you know I think that they I think at some point China would like to have the rights in effect to veto certainly military traffic through the South China Sea through the through the U shaped line. Um, and you know that would obviously have implications for um, you know civilian oil and gas surveys and, and, and you know potentially even fishing boats and things like that So really I think that's you know that that's China's vision for the you know for the for the South China Sea so it's really a question of what other states will do um, in order to try and stop that from happening and, and stick up for their rights um, and the Vietnamese have, have found, realized that they're in that well, they, they basically they, they blinked when it came to these two recent confrontations with China, and they were not prepared um, to risk uh, a confrontation or a conflict. Um, and we all know that um, you know, President Duterte um, is, is, is definitely not going to risk a confrontation with China um, in, the, in, the, you know, in the foreseeable future. So, but at the same time, I think it's worth noting that these Southeast Asian states are really resisting the pressure to agree joint development. None of them have done so. Um, I mean, not even, you know, Brunei, which is tiny and doesn't really, you know, have sufficient military force to defend itself. Um, You know, they've all, you know, made clear that they're not going to give ground on this. So I think really that's, you know, that's where they need the support, you know, that they if they have, you know, they, they clearly have the rights to exploit their offshore resources and that that needs to be made clear. And that's where I think, you know, outside countries can can help and assist.
0: We've been talking with Bill Hayton, who's an associate fellow with the Asia-Pacific program at Chatham House, and his research has shed an important light on the history of the South China Sea claims. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much
1: for having me.